Romans 8:12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Loren. Let's uh, ask God's help as we uh, think about the passage and uh, apply it to our lives today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for that you are Emmanuel. Thank you that you have come into this world so that we might know you. And as we are see in this passage, not only know you, but and know you as Father, as Abba Father. Lord, for some of us, that might be a strange concept. For some of us, it's one we've thought about before. But today, we come expectantly that you're going to instruct and teach all of us something new about yourself. You want to take us deeper into a relationship with you. For some of us, perhaps you want to begin a relationship. And so we, we listen expectantly, Lord, asking for the help of your Holy Spirit. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting today or you haven't been here for the uh, last two weeks, uh, we're in the middle of a short series in chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the Romans, thinking about this chapter particularly right now in the context of this season of Advent. As I've mentioned several times already in the church calendar, Advent uh, marks the beginning of the Christian year. Historically, it's not been intended so much as just the the run-up to Christmas, but rather the season that looks forward not, not only to the birth of the Lord Jesus, but even more so to the second coming of Christ. So Advent locates the church, we've been saying, between uh, what we've called the, the, in this period called the time between, as we await Jesus' return to restore all things, to make all things new. And as such, in this time between, Advent actually invites us, we've been thinking about, to do two things. Firstly, to face up to the present darkness of a world where everything is not right. But secondly, to also be people of hope. We're people of hope because in this season, because Advent brims with joyful expectation for the one who promised he will return to restore all things, to make all things new, back to the way they're meant to be. And that anticipation of joy is traditionally actually a, particularly a focus on this third Sunday of Advent. We heard that in the call to worship uh, from the Crumplers this morning. That that's also the significance of the, the one pink candle alongside the three purple candles up here at the front. I'd always thought the pink candle, candle must be the final one in Advent because, well, it's a different color from the others. 
but Pat Fish enlightened me, pun intended, enlightened me to it being the third of the four candles as it represents joy. So that Advent brings with it this combination of frustration and hope, and that's the tension that we carry around as Christians in this world. And to keep that tension front and center through this series, we actually started two weeks ago in the middle of Romans 8, in the passage right after today's passage, where Paul writes of three groaning witnesses in this present world, the groaning witness of the whole created order, the groaning witness even of the Holy Spirit, and the groaning witness of us as Christians, that because of this this frustration and hope that we have in this world, we groan as well. And part of our groaning, of course, is because of our physical frailty and mortality, but it's not just our aging bodies that make us groan. It's also because our sinful nature hasn't fully been dealt with yet. As Christians, we groan because, as Paul says later in this chapter, we're, in a sense, we're only half saved. We're only half redeemed. God hasn't finished off the process yet. And consequently, we still sin. We still at times willingly go our own way rather than going God's way. And it might be tempting to think, well, that's just the way it's going to be, right? Just have to get used to it, not get too worked up about it. Paul would differ with that opinion, however, that when it comes to sin, there's no room in the Christian life for resignation or pessimism or surrender or truce. That when it comes to sin, we're in a fight. A fight, however, for which we have the resources to win. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. Christians are sons of God called to assassinate sin. Christians are sons of God called to assassinate sin. That language of sonship, if you're wondering why sons, not children, or sons and daughters, I promise we'll get to that. But we're going to think about this passage that Loren read for us in two parts today. First of all, our new relationship to sin. Secondly, our new relationship with God. Christians are sons of God called to assassinate sin. So first, our new relationship to sin. Look at uh, verses 12 and 13 again. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, Paul's so then, at the very beginning of that passage, verse 12, refers us back to what he's just written before this and what we looked at last Sunday. That is, in verses 9 to 11, Paul told us that when we received Christ and were declared right with God because of what Jesus has done for us, at the same time, the Holy Spirit entered us and made us spiritually alive. The astounding news Paul reminds us now is that someday, God will totally renew even our bodies and make us eternally alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. The very same power that raised Jesus from the dead will do that. I mean, talk about a glorious hope, a glorious future. But now, as Paul continues in our section, he wants to soberly call our attention to the fact that there is still within each of us that which is hostile, that which is in total opposition to our growing life in the spirit. It's our flesh. It's our sinful nature. It's what we, I called last week, our our self. You take the word flesh, you drop the H, you turn it backwards. It's our sin-dominated self. 
It's possible, Paul's intimating here, that before we became Christians, we felt some obligation, some indebtedness to that sinful nature to do what it told us to do. Our self, sin-dominated self, can be quite cunning, can be quite persistent, constantly making demands, often in a whiny voice. It'll say, you know, you, you do have some obligations to me that you've been neglecting. I'm feeling starved by you. I haven't had a proper fling for ages. Whatever it is you say in the pulpit, Andrew, you know you still want to satisfy my desires. So why not just give me a break and let me loose for a while? And there may have been a time when you and I willingly would have given in to such temptation, says Paul, but not anymore. Paul says, we don't have an obligation to the flesh. And as you read that, you're expecting him to say, okay, but you do have an obligation too. But Paul actually doesn't go there. It's, it's intended, it's understood, we have an obligation to the Spirit. That's probably what's in the back of his mind, but he doesn't spell it out. It's almost as if Paul is so determined to make clear that our relationship with God through Jesus is not some kind of legal obligation. It's not some sort of business relationship. We live for God not out of external obligation, that rather any desire to live for God comes not from the outside, but from the inside, as the Holy Spirit lives within us and reminds us of all the riches that we have through Jesus. That drives our motivations, that transforms our behavior. And with regard to sin, Paul says, the Spirit now enables us to do what needs to be done so that we can escape the consequences of sin, escape eternal death, and instead experience eternal life. Namely, the Spirit equips us to put to death the deeds of the body. So there's an irony in what Paul writes here. There's a kind of life, he says, that leads to death, living according to the sinful nature. And there's a way of death, there's a kind of killing that leads to life. That by the Spirit, we're to have a new relationship to sin. We're not to live for it, we're to kill it. We're to be assassins. We're to be assassins of sin. Now, this process of putting to death is what older theologians used to call mortification. They got this from the old King James translation of verse 13, where it says, If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Perhaps the most famous book written on this subject, and still probably, I think, the most profitable for us as Christians to read today, is a book entitled The Mortification of Sin by the 17th century Puritan writer John Owen. The book's genesis was actually a series of sermons that Owen preached to teenage boys at Oxford University in the second half of the 17th century, but it's a book that has helped countless Christians uh, ever since. Owen wrote in this in the book, he said, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. But perhaps the sentence in the book that is most famous is one that lines up perfectly with what Paul writes here, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So what does that look like? Here's, here's how John Stott defines this idea of mortification. He says it's a ruthless rejection of all practices we know to be wrong. 
a ruthless rejection of all practices we know to be wrong. That's a good definition because it is certainly ruthless. The, the Greek word here put to death is, is a violent word. It's, it's total. It means to declare war on attitudes and behaviors that are wrong, to give them no space, to take no prisoners, to kill them, to strangle them, to starve them of oxygen until they can breathe no more. It means that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't play games with sin. You don't deceive yourself into thinking it's really not a big deal because it's a massive deal. When I was growing up in Belfast, our church youth group or youth fellowship, as we called it, would get invited every so often to a coffee bar or to a concert at a neighboring church where there would usually be a Christian band playing. Often the band consisted simply of members from the host church, but every now and then we'd get a well-known band and in my teenage years, they're, they're, they came no bigger in the Northern Irish Christian band world than moral support. Led by their lead singer, Andy McCarroll, moral support rocked. And their most famous album came out in 1981. It's called Zionic Bond. The opening song of the album was entitled Sin, and part of it went like this. The results of rebellion causing societal ills. It pounds and beats to death like a pneumatic drill. You take it very lightly and excuse it at will. Don't realize it's cancer. Don't realize sin kills. It affects my body and corrupts my brain. It affects like poison running through my veins. It penetrates all, all it touches, it stains. It's like living your life, living your life, living your life in a sewage drain. I want to hate it with all of me. Now, it's not exactly at the level of Shakespearean poetry, I'll admit that, but I, but I can tell you that this song significantly shaped me as a 13-year-old young Christian. It, it helped me see that you don't play games with sin. You kill it. You execute it. You have the same attitude to sin as the doctors have to Murphy's leukemia as they treat her with chemotherapy. You deal with sin the way a gardener addresses that poison ivy in their garden. He can't just ignore it. He can't just clip it or gently get under the soil to try to deal with it. He has to go to the very root of the problem, spraying to, to kill it at its very roots. And Paul says we're to have the same attitude to sin by the help of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice that this is an ongoing thing. The tense of you put to death isn't kind of once and done, it's present continuous. You keep on putting sin to death in your life. Man, at Theology on Tap on Wednesday night, we were talking about this and, and just how hard that can be because it's just incessant. The war never ends. And that's why I think Paul's making such an emphasis on the Holy Spirit here because the Holy Spirit's empowering and strengthening that is crucial in this battle. And Paul says here, we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That phrase, by the Spirit, I think is synonymous with a phrase he uses in the next verse, where he talks about being led by the Spirit. Because being led by the Spirit here is not about some kind of guidance. It's not about discerning where you should live and whether you should get married and where you should work and so on. Rather, Paul uses a really strong, robust word here when he talks about being led that speaks of a, of a spirit-driven inner compulsion. That in the end, I'm to be fully activated in this war against sin in my life, but at the same time, I'm 100% dependent on the Holy Spirit living in me. So on the one hand, we can't do this without the empowering 
work of God's Spirit. But at the same time, Paul is teaching us that God does not bring about this change without our involvement. We're to actively, wholeheartedly, persistently be putting sin to death. So it's not a case of just let go and let God. Becoming like Jesus is not like a powerboat where you sit back and do nothing. Neither is it like a rowboat where it's all about your effort. Rather, it's more like a yacht where you and the wind work together, responding to the wind's direction, the wind's energy, the wind, of course, representing here the Holy Spirit. I think that was me. So, so let, let's get very practical at, at, for the moment. So what, what might this look like in your life? There's an area in your life that isn't right right now, isn't there? An area of unaddressed sin, something malignant, something possibly spreading, a sin to which you've sort of given squatter's rights in your life. And this is not me being particularly prophetic about you individually. It's simply a sober acknowledgement that every Christian is still dealing with a festering sin nature that we're tempted to ignore. So what would it mean for you to assassinate that particular sin, to execute it, to not just to prune it, but to root it out? I'm guessing for a congregation our size this morning that for at least a few of us, that area of sin may involve unresolved anger. For some of us, perhaps an addiction to pornography. For others, a propensity to lie. And you might even have tried to fix it, to say, well, I'll do a better job next time. But you've just pruned. The roots have never actually been addressed. You haven't yet asked yourself, you know, there's a sin beneath the sin here that's caused, that's bringing about these symptoms. I wonder what it is. What's the root cause of this behavior? The truth is you need to do that because as John Owen said, you need to be killing that sin or it's going to kill you. And some of us may be thinking, well, I'm okay. Don't struggle with any of those big sins that he just mentioned. But even when it comes to what are sometimes referred to as the respectable sins, i.e. those things that everybody does and so we don't think are such a big deal, it's time for execution of those too. For example, that strong craving in your life for a trouble-free life no matter what, or your need for an uninterrupted schedule, those things are killing you as well because they're increasingly making you more impatient and unloving and judgmental. So they need to die as well. As Christians, we have a new relationship to sin. We're to be assassins. Now, if this all sounds, uh, still sounds hard, our second point brings us really good news because we, we've not only a new relationship to sin, we have a new relationship with God, and it's a game changer. Look at verses 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This week I finished uh, reading Alan Noble's recent book, You Are Not Your Own. 
In the book, Noble describes how everything in modern society just feels fluid, including matters of identity. Modernity, modern society tells us that in contrast to the title of his book, you are your own, that we each belong to no one except ourselves. No one can choose your journey. No one can give you a purpose, define your identity, choose your values, or determine where you belong but you. In the modern world, all these choices are ours to make. And while that might sound freeing and empowering, the reality is that it turns out to be a crushing responsibility. Not only do you have to work really hard at it, but what makes it even more difficult is that everybody else is doing the exact same thing. Everyone else is announcing on social media or elsewhere, here I am, this is who I am, this is me, this is what I'm all about. So you're competing against this cacophony of noise from other people announcing to the world who they are so that they can feel like they're someone, that they matter. But for all of us who do this, it's a responsibility that never actually delivers on its promise of a free and fulfilled life. In contrast, it leaves us feeling exhausted, discontented, anxious, and even depressed. There's a perpetual feeling of inadequacy where you always feel you've got to do a little bit more and a little bit more in order to define and publicize who you are. Now, it's quite possible that some of us here know exactly what Alan Noble is talking about because this sounds exactly, if we're honest, like our life, whether that's on social media or not. And what troubles us about it, even when we do it, is that if this is how we operate, if this is how we live, we have the sneaking feeling that, that life isn't supposed to be this way. It feels like sort of a, a suit of clothes that's just too small, that constantly uncomfortably pinches and occasionally rips. It doesn't fit, and that's for good reason, because this understanding of identity doesn't fit human nature as God designed it. The big question in Western society today is, who am I? And Alan Noble wants to argue that the better question for us to ask is, whose am I? Whose am I? Some of you will have picked up the title of his book draws from the answer of the 16th century Heidelberg Catechism to its first question. Question being, what is your only hope in life and death? Answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Whose am I? At the heart of Christian identity is the confession that I am not my own, but belong to God, and that makes all the difference. And here in Romans 8, Paul is making the same assertion, but just from a, another angle. The Christian is not a spiritual orphan. The Christian is a son of God. Whose am I? I belong to my heavenly Father. All who are led by the Spirit of God, Paul says, are sons of God. So let me just say a quick word about Paul's terminology here, because a not uncommon charge leveled against the apostle is that he's sexist, he's misogynistic here when he writes about us becoming sons. Why couldn't he be more egalitarian and say children? Well, actually, by using the language of sonship for all of us, male and female, 
Paul was actually making a revolutionary egalitarian statement because in most ancient cultures, including the culture in which Paul lived, daughters could not inherit property. Only sons could inherit. Therefore, son meant legal heir and was a status forbidden at the time to women. But the gospel that Paul's proclaiming here tells us that we're all sons of God in Christ, whether male or female. We all get the benefits of adoption and inheritance. So although most of the time around here we'll speak of us being sons and daughters of God or children of God, as Paul actually does then in verse 16, says children of God, if when we look at a passage like this, when we don't let Paul say to women, in Christ you too are sons, you too are heirs, then we actually miss how radical a claim this is. Everyone who is led by the Spirit of God, everyone, male and female alike, are sons of God. But Paul's bigger point here, however, is that sonship is not our natural state. We're, we're actually not correct in our terminology to speak of every person in this world as a child of God. Because the Bible doesn't do that. Yes, every person is of infinite value because every person is made in the image of God. But the Bible only applies the language of sons of God, children of God, to those who have been adopted by God's grace through our faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. Our sonship has to be secured for us by Jesus. So that before we were adopted, we were not sons. Paul says we were slaves. We were indebted to our sinful nature, consequently consumed by fear. But Paul says that's all changed now. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Today's uh, quote for reflection in your bulletins, another quote from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, I think I've mentioned in every sermon in the series so far. But in the, in the bulletin quote, Packer makes the statement that our adoption by God is the highest privilege the gospel offers. There's no higher privilege. Listen to how he teases that out in this section from the book, Knowing God. He says, as justification, that is our being declared right with God, as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests on it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Paul says it's by the Spirit who has activated our adoption that we cry, Abba, Father. Now, for some of us, I realize that the first thing that comes to mind when we hear the word Abba is the reunion this year of four aging Swedish pop singers. However, here in Romans 8, that was a joke, by the way, the band Abba, they, they reformed this year. They have a new album. Go check it out. Apparently, it's very good. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Here in Romans 8, Abba is actually an intimate Aramaic word fairly close to our English word, Daddy. 
And the question to ask here in verse 15 is why would Paul introduce an Aramaic word in a letter to Greek-speaking Romans who probably didn't know Aramaic? Paul trying to show off that he's a polyglot, that he doesn't just know Greek, but he also knows the, the common language of Palestine. Well, no, Paul's not trying to show off here. The significance of this word is it's the very word Jesus himself would have used in talking to his own father. It's the Aramaic word for father, but the diminutive form, papa, daddy. And to use such a word is only appropriate for the most intimate and open relationship between a parent and a child. That's how Jesus spoke to his father. And Paul says, with his spirit in you, the spirit of Christ in you, that's how you get to speak to the God of the universe too, as your heavenly father. We're to approach God as those who are as beautiful, as faithful, as loved as Jesus himself. You see what security and assurance that, that, that gives to us? That we're not slaves in relationship to God, fearful of a, a beating for some misdemeanor. We're not servants worrying about getting fired for disobeying some rules. We're not tenants who are afraid of the rent man coming to evict us. We're adopted children. The affection of the father that the father has for Jesus the son is the affection he has for all who have been redeemed by the son. So the way that Jesus the son spoke to the father is the way we get to speak to him as well. Abba, father. Paul says even as we speak those words, the spirit testifies to us through those words that we are God's children. And even heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, confirmed by our common experience with Jesus of suffering, then glory. We have a new relationship with God. I hope you see the significance of this. It means that God is always there. It means that he's delighted to hear us when we come to him. That he's not remote, he's not distant, he's not uninvolved as some earthly dads may be. I realize that for some of us, the language of father for God is challenging for the plain but painful fact that we bear wounds of some sort from the relationship with our own earthly father. And if that's you, let me gently encourage you not to lose the richness of what Paul is telling us here in light of the failures of your own earthly father. Actually realize instead that in God the Father, you have everything you ever wanted in a father that your earthly father didn't provide. Your heavenly father is interested. He's present. He knows and cares about us such that we have total access to him when we want it. Actually, the privilege we enjoy with God is not unlike that portrayed in the well-known photograph of President John F. Kennedy in the picture Kennedy is seated at, at, at his desk in the Oval Office in the White House. I'm sure you've seen this before, working uh, at his desk, uh, the pile of papers before him, and then underneath the desk, there's John John poking his head out and looking out into the room. If you and I were to show up at the White House and ask to get into the Oval Office to see the president, we know what the answer would be, right? That probably for most of us, if not all of us, there's no chance. When the president is in, who gets to see him? It's the people of greatest influence, the movers, the shakers, accomplished people, famous people, or your child. 
JFK may have been everyone else's president, but to John John, he was daddy. And so for us with God, this relationship isn't built on who you are, what you've accomplished. You can come to the Father because you've been adopted through the Spirit because of what Jesus has done. Your family now. We have a whole new relationship with God. But as we close, let me bring our two points together. One of the things I love about reading and studying the Bible, and this isn't just because I'm a pastor, this can be true of all of us, I hope it is true for all of us, is that so often when I look at a passage, God shows me new things that he hasn't shown me before. And that was the case this week with this passage, and it all has to do with the word cry in verse 15. Greek word that Paul uses there is, is powerfully onomatopoeic. That is, it, it kind of sounds like it means. Greek words kratzo. It, it indicates the, the presence of an intense feeling. So this is not you sitting in your favorite chair with your favorite hot beverage under a cozy blanket and somewhat routinely beginning your morning devotional prayer, Heavenly Father. That's all good, but this is something actually different. Elsewhere, this word cry is the word used for the screaming of a demoniac. It's used for the cries of a blind man. It's used for the very cries of Jesus on the cross. So the atmosphere of this verse is not tranquility. It's crisis. And in those moments of crisis, when our hearts are filled with alarm and terror, we cry, Abba, Father, and the assurance is that he hears us. And there are countless times, of course, when you and I might feel such crisis. But in the context of this passage, I think Paul has in mind one particular kind of crisis, the war on sin in your life and mine. That those times when you just feel like giving up, putting down the weapons, calling it quits, just letting the enemy win, but you don't. Instead, you cry out, Abba, Father, strengthen me, equip me, help me. And the promise is that your heavenly father says, I hear you. I will hear you. I do hear you, especially, especially when you're at your lowest point. Or to put it a slightly different way, Paul's call here to assassinate sin, it happens within the context of the family. That actually makes a huge difference. Our struggles against sin do not happen in a courtroom before a judge where we're, we're just fearful that we're going to get get judged negatively. We're going to be found guilty. They happen within a family before a father who has said, I will not reject you. They happen in a family formed by the spirit of adoption. Christians are sons of God called to assassinate sin, a new relationship to sin, a new relationship with God. I've always loved the, the story of Billy Bray, an 18th century coal miner from Cornwall, England, gloriously converted uh, to Jesus through the reading of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, went on to become a, a Methodist lay preacher. Uh, Bray started out as a rather rough-hewn, foul-mouthed miner, but he came to faith in Jesus, sitting in a rather sedate Anglican church in Truro in the south of England, where the reality of the truth of the gospel dawned upon his soul. And when it dawned, he just stood up in the middle of whatever else was going on in the service, and he clambered over the pews to the surprise of everyone around him, shouting, I'm the son of a king! I'm the son of a king! And 
friends, through the Spirit, you and I are such sons too. And that gives us everything we need, everything we need to kill sin in our lives. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for making little of what is much. Forgive us for downplaying the highest privileges that are known, can be known, to men and women in this world. That having been justified and made right with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we now know what it is to have been adopted by you. We thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father, Papa, Daddy. And we thank you that that gives us all the resources for living this life, not least for the killing of sin in our lives. Lord, if nothing else, may, may you have given us a new spirit-driven, spirit-convicted determination today to deal with whatever that festering sin in our life is that has just been there for so long, we've just given up on it. But no more, Lord, because we want to please you, because you're our Father. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.